Yeah, so it would be tremendously helpful if we can actually predict the target of the natural product that is encoded by the biosynthetic gene cluster. Like I was mentioning earlier, a lot of these natural products are nature's uh, chemical weapon. Um, and so, and these are encoded inside living organisms, right? So these living organisms must also develop um, some kind of self-protective mechanism so that they don't actually uh, die as a result of uh, the production of these drugs. My name is Kashif, and this is BioRadio, a group of biologists turned bioinformaticians bring you into the world of research and development informatics by interviewing the people responsible for implementing systems and technologies to a unique and diverse set of use cases. Over the past few decades, numerous advancements such as penicillin, statins, and various oncology drugs have emerged from the field of microbial natural product drug discovery. There are several challenges in harnessing the potential of microbial natural products, which is often manual and prolonged. However, with the help of advanced sequencing technologies and algorithms, scientists are discovering and unlocking the immense potential hidden within microbes. In this episode, we'll explore cutting-edge technologies and methodologies that are revolutionizing microbial natural product drug discovery. To talk about this, today we're here with Karen Wong. Could you please introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, so my name is Karen Wong. I'm a computational biologist at Hexagon. And here we are a early stage drug discovery startup that specializes in fungal genomics, uh, natural product chemistry, as well as synthetic biology. So let's take a step back. What is the need for new compounds? Why are you even looking at, my, at microbes for trying to find compounds? So natural products have a lot of uh, key important biomedical properties. So a lot of the um, uh, FDA approved drugs out there are actually uh, either natural products or they're inspired by natural products. Um, so like you were mentioning earlier, the statin. So uh, for example, lovostatin is actually discovered in Aspergillus fungus. It is a widely prescribed uh, cholesterol lowering drugs. Uh, that you know is clinically proven to reduce the chance of cardiovascular diseases. Um, so uh, lovostatin uh, basically uh, works by inhibiting a key enzyme in the production of cholesterol. There's also penicillin, which is a landmark uh, antibiotics discovery. Um, it was first discovered in the 1920s, and it was actually initially discovered in, in the penicillium fungus. Um, so of course, it's also a widely utilized uh, antibiotics in the clinic. Um, and also in the oncology space, there's actually a lot of natural products uh, that um, are actually very relevant. So for example, Taxol. So Taxol is um, a anti-cancer agent that can suppress tumor growth and proliferation. Um, it works by targeting microtubules. Um, even though it's a natural product that's derived from plants, um, there's cl uh, clearly a lot of clinical values in um, natural products. Um, and another thing is that many of the natural products, they actually uh, have very favorable pharmacokinetic profile. Um, they also have very good uh, bioavailability as well. So um, what that means is that even though a lot of natural products are, um, you know, they might look bulky, but they can actually cross the cell membrane really easily. Um, and also they have very good ATME profile, uh, which make them very drug-like. So the idea is then once we discover a natural product from these um, microbial organisms, uh, we can then, uh, I mean, the time it takes for it to go from discovery to the clinic uh, would be shortened. Um, and in fact, a lot of the natural products never need to be modified through medicinal chemistry, and it can go straight to clinic. From my perspective, there's a lot of natural products that exist that are sort of untapped. 
Could you describe the enormity of that the microbial world? Like how much do you think we've looked at and how much is yet to be discovered or, or at least cataloged? Yeah, so this is actually a great question. Um, so we at Hexagon have a special interest in fungal uh, natural products, and this is because uh, only about 5,000 fungal genomes are uploaded in the, into the public database. And so um, we believe that that number corresponds to 0.1% of all the fungal species that ever existed. 0.1%, um, wow. <laughs> yeah, so the diversity is immense out there. And so that's why we are particularly interested in understanding uh, fungal biosynthetic gene clusters, which code for these uh, natural products. So as you're looking at this, uh, you know, the, the 99.95% of fungi that have not been discovered, um, are you looking at ITS or ATS, or are you actually doing the full genome? We are actually doing the full genome uh, sequencing to uh, reconstitute the, the full genomic landscape of these microbes. I mean, we also do look at ITS um, taxonomic classification, um, sure. but that's more in helping us assess uh, um, uh, in helping us dereplicate some of these genomes because uh, one of the key challenges we have is that when we collect these samples from uh, different environment, uh, from different soil samples, um, there's oftentimes a high redundancy. So um, ITS is often used for uh, dereplication as well as uh, um, strain taxonomic classification. But to us, um, classification is not the main priority when we are doing whole genome sequencing. Get and it. also another thing is that a lot of these fungal genomes are actually very novel. Um, and so their ITS sequences might not necessarily you match anything in the database. Wow. <laughs> a lot of untapped uh, resource, I guess. Yeah. Just taking a step back in terms of natural products, um, how how is that, I guess, easier or more efficient or, or why look at natural products as opposed to synthetic products? And then second question is why... Uh, fungi as opposed to bacteria or viruses, for instance. Yeah. Okay. So natural products are actually believed to have evolved over millions of years. So they're actually optimized um, over the course of evolution for target specificity as well as toxicity. Um, so the reason why they exist in these living organisms is that they're basically nature's uh, chemical weapon. Um, and so uh, a lot of these basically are only turned on uh, when they are stressed or when resources are scarce. And so um, they basically need to fend off foreign pathogens uh, as well as essentially any uh, predator in their natural habitat. So they would basically release these uh, drug or toxin to kill off the competitor. Um, and so because they have been optimized for such a long period of time, um, this is we believe this is a process that is hard to mimic in the lab. Um, so nature really has devised some of these really complicated molecules. So in some of the example, uh, oh, so for example, in uh, cyclosporin, which is a immunosuppressant, right. um, the mechanism of inhibition is not as simple as just inhibiting the uh, an enzyme, but in this specific case, it actually binds to a, it is actually a molecular glue, uh, which is something that binds to a protein such that it create a novel surface for something else to bind. Um, so this is this type of molecular glue is not something um, that we can easily design in a lab. Get it. Okay. And then second part of the question in terms of why fungi as opposed to other microbes, bacteria, viruses. 
Yeah, so uh, bacterial biosynthetic gene clusters are, are actually much more well studied. Um, and in the fungal world, like I was mentioning earlier, they're actually very uh, understudied. Most species actually have uh, not yet been discovered. Um, and so another thing is that fungal uh, and human, they're both eukaryotes. So we believe that the natural product that they're producing uh, would be more relevant in human disease context. So that's the second reason. Um, and then the third one um, is actually uh, something more complicated. Um, I might actually have to take a step back to describe biosynthetic gene clusters. Um, and let me see if I can actually <laughs> do a good job. So I've been referring to uh, biosynthetic gene clusters, and this is actually uh, basically the genetic elements uh, encoded inside these living microbes to produce these natural products. Um, and so these biosynthetic gene clusters, they in at least in bacteria and uh, fungi, they are actually organized in a modular fashion. And so what that means is that you will basically find a single genomic locus where all 10 or 20 genes in a row are all co-regulated and co-expressed together to um, produce these secondary metabolites or these natural products. Um, so, but unfortunately in plants, their biosynthetic gene clusters is actually scattered all over the genome. So it's not an easy or convenient bioinformatic bioinformatics handle for us to discover um, the uh, full biosynthetic gene clusters from end to end. Um, and being having the capability to discover the full, the entirety of a biosynthetic gene cluster is very important because we are also a synthetic biology company. If we know every single gene that is involved in the pathway, we can actually order the DNA, manipulate their sequences, put it in a plasmid, um, and express them heterologously in a different organism. So that will give us that power um, to do that discovery. Got it. Uh, for reference, these are the BGCs yes, that correct. everyone talks about. Okay, so this is the equivalent of a protein being expressed in, in like a, a normal gene. Uh, yes, except uh, usually we're talking about a cassette of genes and together they orchestrate the production of one natural product. So you mentioned sequencing, uh, you mentioned these, uh, these uh, gene clusters. How has sequencing technology enabled this level of granularity, right? I mean, I can imagine uh, 20 years ago before next-gen sequencing, right? Trying to do this on capillary sequencing, Sanger sequencing, right, would have been a huge task. How, how has like the, the, the actual instruments, how have the sequencing boxes enabled better technology and, and even, the, um, even the ability to, to look at these genomes? Um, so the idea here is actually we want to reconstitute the, um, the original fungal genome. So we actually need to do that via de novo assembly. Uh, so the de novo assembly with uh, short reads um, generally performs pretty well, especially since a lot of these fungal genomes do not have a lot of repetitive sequences. And are pretty small to begin with. Uh, they are, yeah, a lot smaller than the human genomes, but having uh, the capability to have long read sequencing will also be able to, you know, bridge across these uh, difficult to assembled region. So that has generally been very helpful in uh, generating a de novo assembly of all these novel sequences or these novel fungal genome that has never been sequenced before. Get it. So uh, quickly on the bioinformatic pipeline side of things, you mentioned you mentioned short read technology, long read technology. Uh, to to overcome difficult areas or problematic areas in terms of the sequencing or the genome. Um, 
bioinformatically, how, how are you collecting the data? How are you then, like, what, what is your high level of approach in terms of the de novo assembly and then also the cataloging of, of those genomes? Yeah, so um, maybe let me just take a step back and uh, quickly walk through the process of sample curation because uh, basically we have these licensed uh, uh, contractor that goes to national forests that collect these samples for us. And so they actually um, uh, send the soil samples back and then we actually grow them up uh, as individual strains. Um, and actually, there's a very interesting problem of genome dereplication. I mean, genome dereplication is, uh, I guess, uh, an area of focus I want to talk about because um, there's like convolutional neural network that we sort of deploy there, but um, I can go back to. So majority of the sample actually come from the state of California. So California is actually known to have a lot of uh, diverse uh, different microenvironments. So even within California, we're seeing very diverse uh, fungal strains that are very unique. Uh, so basically, these sample collector would send the soil sample back to our lab, and we would actually uh, grow them up in 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 our lab environments. So um, one of the major bottle, uh, one of the major issue we have here is the fact that a lot of these strains, because they are collected from um, maybe soil samples that are actually in close physical proximity, so we have to somehow dereplicate our samples. Um, and here we actually use a uh, pre-trained uh, convolutional neural net to, oh, nice. uh, yeah, so to dereplicate uh, samples that come from uh, uh, similar batches, um, and then. But you're doing that at the sequencing level, not the physical strain level. We both. are actually doing, uh, so we actually grow them up on plate, and then we have an automated method to do uh, uh, culture imaging. And so you can, based on morphological oh, nice. uh, features, we can actually then dereplicate uh, um, samples in a given um, in a given batch. Okay. And what what is the scale? Like per collection, how many different strains do you typically de- duplicated strains do you find in in a in a typical soil sample i mean uh, about half of the overall total number of strains that get grown up actually get dereplicated but there's also so first we do morphological imaging based dereplication but then we also do sequence based dereplication uh, via a low pass whole genome sequencing so we can actually sequence these uh, I guess as a second round of dereplication, we can sequence these genome at low pass. So we're talking about 0.5 to 1 eggs. And okay. then we can look at their KMER profiles to actually then deduplicate against everything that we have in our database, just to make sure that we are um, uh, consolidating all of our um, downstream pipeline resources to novel genomes. So you're doing this imaging. How are you storing the data and how are you processing it? Is that something that, that is novel in terms of your organization or is that something that exists in terms of looking at uh, the morphology of these, of these fungi? So uh, we actually do not need to really store any image data because um, once you take a picture of the culture, um, you basically are looking at the image pixel by pixel. Um, and a lot of the uh, CNN or convolutional neural net autoencoder, you can basically convert these information-rich image pixel data down to a one-dimensional vector embedding. And based on the embedding, we can do clustering to identify novel strains. Okay. So we're not really storing any image data per se. Especially because we have such a long and complicated pipeline, we would try to avoid storing as much data as possible. So I'm envisioning, you know, back in my microbiology days, like a grid 
on on a on a plate, and mm-hmm. then you say, you know, th- this area over here is a hot spot. This is something new. Let's go do a low pass sequencing, or is it the entire plate that you're then doing the low pass sequencing on? Once we perform a dereplication based on the well, then we can then grow them up and do library prep and send those out for low pass sequencing. Okay, all right, and this is like a 96 well or a 384 well plate. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're 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 looking at them. You're looking at them in mass. Okay, correct. So so you do the the computation on the imaging and the sequencing. Is that done on the cloud? Is that on prem? How much of on that premise. is okay, and how how much of that is um, uh, sort of self derived algorithms versus something that you can take off the shelf? Like I, I I'm not sure I understand uh, you know kind of the maturity of of this image analysis. Um, it's actually pretty mature. So there's a lot of um, model off the shelf that you can take. Um, essentially, you're using that as a way to extract the features uh, based on the images. Um, and then you can just deploy that uh, in-house. And because we also have uh, essentially a lot of our lab processes are automated. So uh, you have a robotic arm that will take images of every single culture. Um, and then it would do the dereplication um, via, and basically you can just compute. Yeah, but informatically, you would compute the uniqueness of these culture and choose the most representative one um, per group. Okay. All right. So then... You have these two passes at the beginning. You pick which strains, which wells you're going to do full sequencing on. Are you doing like 10x, 20x? Like how, how deep of coverage are you doing in terms of the sequencing? And and what does the pipeline look like in terms of uh, assembling those genomes? You, you mentioned short read, long read. Like what does that bioinformatic process look like? Well, okay. So first of all, we sequenced the genome of up to 500x, in wow. fact. Um, yeah. So... We basically then uh, perform de novo assembly, and this is uh, using a graph-based assembler. Like De Bruyne graph. Uh, we can look at, I mean, one key metrics is the N50s, which measure the contiguity of your assembled uh, scaffolds. Right. Um, and then we can also um, generally look and align the reads back to the to the consensus sequence or the assembled sequence um, to basically look and see um, the coverages of our sequences. Got it. Wow, sounds pretty automated, and, and I'm I'm envisioning a world where you know you you have these plates, you scan them, you uh, do the low pass sequencing, you identify the deduplicates, you do the deep sequencing. You mentioned five hundred X ish, right? And then anything that doesn't quite pass, you flag it, and then probably resequence and and. Yeah, sometimes we sequence or sometimes we move on with life since we are actually collecting a lot of different unique unique strains from the environments. And I mean, even though with all the safeguards in place, we're still getting um, duplicated sequences, any uh, genomes anyway. So um, it's pretty safe for us to sometimes just move on. Okay. And any sense of how large that database is of unique assembled genomes. Yeah, so we have uh, in-house at least 60 to 70,000 genomes right now. Um, so these are novel sequences that, uh, that are sequenced in-house. And again, these are strains that are sampled from uh, um, in U.S. national for, uh, forests with permits. Sure, sure. And, and, and those 60, 70,000 uh, genomes, like over what period of time? Is that like five years? I would years? say more like uh, two to three years. Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and that's the trajectory. Just keep, Correct. keep sequencing. Okay. And then now let's hop over to that to me is secondary analysis, right? Like mm-hmm. I have my assembled genomes. I catalog them. I'm probably mm-hmm. doing some sort of phylogenetic tree to understand the Correct. diversity. You mentioned 18S, ITS to kind of map the map them from a taxonomic perspective. Yeah. Um, 
what happens next? How, how are you interpreting these data? Once you have assembled genomes, basically we then need to annotate them uh, right. for genes as well as functional domains. Um, so functional domains are particularly important for uh, biosynthetic gene clusters to, uh, discovery because there are several major classes of biosynthetic gene clusters um, and there are certain functional domains that basically are um, almost always tied to them because they are highly conserved. You mentioned uh, 0.05% or some, something like that in terms of the genomes that are available of, of, of fungi. Uh, how much annotation already exists, right? Or in, And for the ones that you don't have a gene cluster that's already been annotated, how do you go about annotating that if you didn't even have the sequence to begin with? Yeah, so I mean, genome annotation on novel fungal strain generally is a challenge. There's a lot of deep learning uh, model out there that help us better annotate the genes. Um, so it's challenging because um, in a lot of these uh, novel fung fungal, they don't necessarily have a lot of conserved um, genetic elements. For example, start codon doesn't necessarily need to be AUG. They can have these uh, alternate non-canonical start codons. Um, and sometimes their open reading frame might also look a little bit different, or they might have multiple start codon, and sometimes you don't actually know which one to annotate. And again, because these are novel genomes um, it's generally a challenge start, but right. you know um, you just have to like basically try a bunch of different methods sometimes we can also supplement it with RNA seq sequencing so we know exactly what it's how, expressing yeah um, but fortunately, one thing um, that is good for us is that because a lot of these uh, functional domains are highly conserved, so um, sometimes even when you don't get the gene annotation correct, you can still identify the functional domains. You've, you've done the effort of cataloging these genomes. You start understanding the gene clusters. What's the next step in the drug discovery process? Yeah, so it would be tremendously helpful if we can actually predict the target of the natural product that is encoded by the biosynthetic gene cluster. So bioinformatically, when we're searching these biosynthetic gene cluster, um, sometimes we might find some odd things in there. So earlier I was mentioning that a biosynthetic gene clusters will have a core enzymes, some tailoring genes, some transporter, uh, maybe even a transcription factor. Um, but sometimes you will find some gene that clearly doesn't fall into any yeah, one of those, those buckets. Sure. And so uh, scientists quickly realized that this is actually a duplicated and mutated version of the gene that the natural product is actually targeting. I mean, this is actually not very common in fungal species, but we believe that three to 5% of the biosynthetic gene clusters actually carry the self-duplicated resistant gene. And again, this basically is a very convenient bioinformatics handle for us to make a prediction on what the natural products are actually trying to target. From like a scale perspective, like how, how big is this catalog of all of your genomes with all of the annotations and you talked about ORFs and open, uh, you know, the, the open reading frames. You talked about um, start codons and, and things like that. Like I, I'm imagining a lot of information. How, how big is that, is that database? So we, we are storing, I mean, over several terabytes of data um, when it comes to genome annotation, all the gene, all the um, coding sequences, um, the, the whole cluster itself, these are all basically data that we have to store. So because we are very interested in sequencing phyla that are cluster rich, so per genome, we are actually getting about 30 to 50 biosynthetic gene clusters. This is per one 
genome that we sequence. Wow. Um, and because we have, you know, 60 to 70 thousands of these sequence, uh, these genomes in house now. So we have over, you know, if you do the math, we have, we have over 3 millions of these biosynthetic gene clusters in house. Sounds like an enormous amount of data, right? So we talked about, uh, or advancements in sequencing, sequencing technologies, um, I don't know if you have a reference in terms of the cloud and, and how that's enabled, you know, the performance, the scalability, availability of cloud resources. But a third piece to it is the actual software, right? So you mentioned earlier on neural networks. How has the uh, how has development either in the AI space or computation around assembly and annotation evolved? And, and how is that really enabling this type of research? Yeah, um... I would say the a lot of the development in uh, machine learning and particularly generative AI has helped us a lot. So um, in terms of the genome annotation space, uh, DNA language model is an area of active research. Um, and with a lot of new DNA language model, these transformer-based AI models, they can help us uh, uh, better annotate some of these novel fungal genomes, we believe. Um, and generally, I mean, as we are maturing as a company, uh, we are getting more uh, metabolite and protein gene hits. And so uh, for a lot of the validation of our work or, you know, I guess we are looking more and more like a traditional drug company. A lot of the generative AI approach actually will largely apply, um, whether that is transformer, um, protein language model, or diffusion-based model. Let's shift gears a bit. Uh, earlier in the conversation, you talked about um, modification of the compound. How has that? Um, how has genetic engineering and synthetic biology sort of helped in? creating these uh, or, or finding these natural products or, or finding the, the natural derivatives of, of, these, uh, of these compounds. Yeah, so once we have identified that the biosynthetic gene clusters, we can basically manipulate the, the DNA sequences. Sometimes when we have a tailoring enzymes or a gene that doesn't look as good, we can actually swap in a better version. Um, and then we uh, put it in a construct and we can express it in some kind of host organism that we have in-house that can that basically have the capability of uh, producing lots and lots of these natural products that would be important for us because uh, it would be uh, important for us to do structural elucidation because this whole time we we're just talking about a set of genes uh, within the biosynthetic gene clusters, but we don't actually know what the final molecule looks like. So that would sure. involve a lot of um, LCMS as well as uh, NMR for us to figure out the final structure. Kind of thinking about it uh, from, from a linear process, you do the screenings, you do the sequencing, you do the annotation, you find something that, that is being produced that's novel or, or mm -hmm. interesting. What, what happens next? I, I'm assuming it goes into the hands of uh, a chemist to start analyzing sort of the structure and uh, of the compound or potential compounds. Once you have a, a compound that's structurally elucidated and we have a predicted target, it would be very handy for us if we can have the uh, 3D structural model of the protein so we can understand docking. I'm sure a lot of your previous guests have talked about AlphaFold, which is the structural prediction al algorithm that is extremely accurate. Um, and so I guess fast forward a year later, Meta's actually come up with a different transformer model that can uh, basically uh, 
uh, perform tertiary structure prediction uh, when you feed in amino acid sequence. Um, and but the main difference between AlphaFold and ESM Fold is that AlphaFold is something that actually still takes um, quite a while to run, and that uh, you know there are some steps uh, in the AlphaFold process that actually is very CPU intensive and time consuming. Um, and so Transformer has been extremely helpful for us because uh, we can actually do structural prediction of the protein uh, at scale. So when I was talking about a lot of the resistant genes, um, these are really just you know a bunch of amino acid sequences. We don't really sure. know what they look like. And so uh, it would be tremendously helpful if we can have the tertiary structures such that our uh, medicinal chemists can actually perform simulation and try molecular docking. Get it. So, and so thinking about it from a drug discovery process, you you get to the point of elucidating those structures, those compounds. Uh, you're looking at the structure and how it's docking. I'm assuming after that, you're also looking at toxicity and bioavailability and and things along those lines. Yeah, and there's also a lot of transformer-based model that can help us predict based on like you know a smile strange, which represents a compound. Uh, what is their ME profiles going to look like? Um, so in the generative AI space, there's actually a lot of development in drug discovery. Where, where do you think is going to be uh, the the next stage of innovation from from like an AI perspective? I think I think overall in the drug discovery field, there's been a lot of momentum of um, applying generative AI um, for um, novel protein or molecule design. Um, and so if you were to um, previously have some kind of um, protein structures and now you want to diversify it, you can. there are a lot of uh, transformer-based models uh, that will allow you to you know, take a constrained uh, alpha carbon backbone and then fill in amino acid sequences. And so essentially, this is just a way for you to diversify the landscape of the protein or molecule that you're working off of. Um, right. And so we're not constrained by doing things, maybe one molecule or a few molecule at a time, but we can generate a massive number of these structure for testing. Obviously, we, we, we just spoke about the innovation around um, machine learning. Uh, where else do you see microbial natural product drug discovery going? Like fast forward five years, 10 years from now, where, where do you see the industry uh, or, or what advancements do you see? I guess you can look at it from many different angles. And so um, in terms of genome sequencing space, um, the more complete the genome is, the better it is. So for example, right now our process of uh, de novo assembly generate relatively long contexts, but of course longer would be better because when we have clusters that are broken up by short contexts, uh, that means that we won't have the capability to identify the entirety of the cluster and we will be missing some genes such that we cannot uh, we, we cannot uh, manipulate them downstream uh, sure. in, our, in our synthetic biology platform. In terms of uh, genome annotation, this is still a remaining challenge, although I'm really optimistic that with, with a lot of um, DNA, with the advent of DNA language model, we can have drastic improvement there. Uh, and then, of course, in terms of predicting target, I think, you know, having better uh, screening method, either in silico screening or some kind of like actual genetic screening would also be able to help us identify um, a larger set of natural products. Thank you for listening to BioRadio. I'd like to thank Karen for being our guest today, talking about the future of microbial drug discovery. I'd also like to thank the listeners. To join the conversation, visit our blog, biorad.io, and don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcast or Spotify. This podcast is an original creation of Biorad Laboratories. Biorad is a trademark of Biorad Laboratories Incorporated in certain jurisdictions. 
All trademarks mentioned herein are the property of their respective owner.